It's time to explore and find the answers you've been searching for with the new 2023 Data Dive data sets. The MGMA Provider Compensation and Production data set is one of the most comprehensive data sets in the industry, providing hospital and physician-owned practice data and compensation benchmarks for medical directorship, on-call, academic, and starting salaries. The 2023 data set represents nearly 190,000 providers from 6,800 groups spanning 250 specialties. With this valuable data, you can attract and retain the highest quality providers, drive more revenue through productivity, and keep costs contained. Learn more by visiting mgma.com slash data dive. Healthcare is complicated, but you don't have to navigate the complexities alone. Care Allies collaborates with physician organizations to solve some of the toughest challenges on the path to value-based care. As your organization works to effectively manage your more vulnerable patient populations, enhance outcomes, and improve data analytics, Care Allies brings the people, technology, and processes to support you so you can focus on practicing medicine. Visit careallies.com to see how they can help to radically simplify value-based care. Well, hi, everyone. I'm Daniel Williams, Senior Editor of MGMA and host of the MGMA Podcast Network. Today, we welcome Dr. Ashok Roy to the show. Dr. Roy has his MD, his MPH, and his MBA. He's also Chief Medical Officer, Value-Based Care Solutions at Signify Health. And Dr. Roy is here today to talk about applying data analytics and technology to improve value-based care outcomes. Dr. Roy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now I had an opportunity to hear you speak in San Diego at an MGMA event not too long ago, and uh, you talked on a similar topic there. Thought we'd get you on the podcast as well. So um, great having you on here. And before we take a deep dive into this particular topic, I wanted to just give you an opportunity to tell our audience um, a little bit about Signify Health, who that company is, what you guys do there, and what your focus is there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so something new, you know, I, I do belong to Signify Health as the Chief Medical Officer of Value-Based Care. We just got bought up by CVS Health, so we have a new parent company. It's official. But basically, our motto at Signify Health is more happier days at home. So the real focus is making sure that patients are spending more days at home, not unnecessarily, you know, being in avoidable hospitalization, avoidable ED visits. Um, we have two sides of the house with that. Uh, one of them is involving value-based care and ACOs. So that's the side of the house that I'm on. And with that, we manage 750,000 patients it, all in MSSP or Medicare fee-for-service contracts. Uh, for 196 hostel systems that are spread across uh, 47 states and the territory of Guam. Oh, wow. Okay. That was good. And thanks for that uh, news on uh, 
CVS Health uh, coming in and inquiring you guys. So when did that take effect? I, I believe I've seen it come across the news scrolls a few times, but uh, when did that become official? Uh, first week of April. Oh, so we're we're very new. I did, I thought I did see that, and so, it, it, you know the announcements made, but it has to still go through all the regulatory hurdles and not right. uh, closed first week of April. Okay, and just to give our audience uh, an idea, of where are you located? Then where are you based and do your work? So I work remotely. I live in Northern Virginia right now in the suburbs of DC. Our company's headquarters are in Dallas. I think with the entire remote working, we make sure that we all aggregate at least once a month. So that office in Dallas is half full, and then it's over capacity one week a month um, where we all meet in person. Yeah, well, thanks for bringing us up to date on that. So um, now I was looking at uh, some notes you had made for your presentation and some information you had provided us uh, at MGMA. And I'm just going to read this. Uh, this was startling to me, but you had had written out that healthcare spending is not translating to improve patient outcomes and longer life expectancy. In fact, in 2020, the U.S. spent 19% of its GDP on healthcare, and that's significantly more than any other country, but in some cases, not getting the results on that spend. So talk about that. What is going on with the, the U.S. healthcare system, maybe as it compares to other uh, peer countries that we have out there? I think the main thing is we definitely have the motivation, right, as a country to invest in our healthcare, and, and we do. Mm -hmm. The question is, is that money being invested the right way, and are the incentives aligned? Uh, across all the players in the industry. And I think that's where that is not the case. And again, when we're doing the comparisons is with other developed countries. So we spend more per capita than any other developed country in the world. Yet our life expectancy for these developed countries is the lowest, right? We're not talking about developing countries, just developed countries. And again, another index is fine. Maybe we don't live longer, but there's other indexes of those with chronic disease, do they lead healthier lives? And that is not the case in the United States. So it's just the way we reward, right, in the United States. So we have a very, we do have fee for service. And the model really is I see a patient, I get paid for that patient, regardless if they get better or don't get better. Now, every provider, every clinician, every physician out there does their best, right? Not disputing that. But there is no skin in the game to take the effort to be like, I should be rewarded more if the patient gets better versus not getting better. I'm not saying that's how it works in the rest of the world. But given the amount of money we allocate, we know that the fee-for-service model is not working. There needs to be changes to it. So again, there's different models and that's where value-based care, population health, these concepts really started popping up, taking it that now you will be rewarded if you take care of the patient better with better outcomes. And what better outcomes is, is decreasing unnecessary spend and utilization. 
So, I mean, that that's where we're transforming, but change is difficult. So I think that's where CMS, their goal is every Medicare patient in a value-based contract by 2030. So it, it is a little bit of government intervention to push the country towards that direction. But I think generally, as we meet more individuals, as we talk to clients, people believe in it, right? They know this is the right way to go. So they want to do it well. So, you know, that's where we get involved as a company of how do we become successful in value-based care? Okay. Thank you. Uh, that was, <laughs> that's a lot to try to absorb <laughs> and bring in. And uh, one of the ways that I saw you in person do this back in San Diego and and uh, you also have uh, spoken at other MGMA events and other events as well. You really look at the data, the analytics, and the technology and how it meshes with population health and, and get to those better outcomes. So talk about that. What have you seen in your research? And do you have any examples you can share with us there? Yes, yeah, so the, the data. So let's talk about data analytics okay. technology. So data is just the raw information that we get, right? Mm -hmm. From about individuals, about patients, right? Their utilization, things like that. The analytics takes all that data and says, what actions am I gonna do based on this, right? You know, most people, risk stratify patients like, okay, here are my sicker patients, here are my not so sick patients. Should I allocate more time, more resources towards the sick patients? So that's how we use analytics. And then technology is just a tool in which we interact with the patients to get those outcomes that we want. The main thing we use all the data and analytics is to change behavior, right? So this is all change management. And, and the way I see it is, the providers in the fee-for-service world, again, they're motivated, right? They want the best for their patients, but there's three ways we need to shift the mind frame. Number one is making sure that we outreach and take care of patients, even if they don't come to our office. So again, in our fee-for-service model, we actually wait for a patient to come into our office. We're like, if you feel sick, if you feel unwell, you call us first and we're going to take care of you. The problem is they have, each patient's different. They have to have a level of sophistication to be like, I'm going to contact. We need to shift that to outreach to patients and saying, are you okay? Right. The way we say it is we treat patients more like family. We check in on our, our parents. We check in on our kids, right? Same concept. We should be checking in on our patients versus just waiting for them to come in. Number two is the entire healthcare journey, if someone gets sick, you know, can involve the emergency room, inpatient, post-acute. And as a provider, I'm an internal medicine doc, you know, as a provider on the outpatient side, we just assume when they go to these other areas that someone is taking care of them and we don't need oversight. And that was related to when we drop off our kids at school, right? We just assume the teachers are doing the right thing. We don't need to worry about them what they're learning, their safety. Someone is taking care of them that I trust. And what we learn in value-based care is, yes, that everyone has a good intention, but just having that little bit of oversight when they're outside the outpatient 
environment does make a huge difference. So you're in charge of the patient during the entire continuity of care versus just in the outpatient side. Um, the number three way that we look at this is, I'm trying to think of the best example for this. Um, let's just focus on those two for right okay. now. I may remember number three. Um, for sure. With this, what we do with the data is support the change, right? To go into this frame of mind for value-based care. So what I would recommend, I, I know one of the questions is like, what do we do with this? Is mm -hmm. number one, getting providers familiar with the data, mm -hmm. right? Because you'll be surprising. There's a lot of times providers, like this is the first time they're seeing results on themselves, right? Right. Everyone thinks they're a great doctor and they are great doctors or great providers, but here are some, these are how your patients are doing. So we don't take the time to explain, here's the data on you. Here's what it means. This is where it comes from, right? Mm -hmm. Number two is the timeliness of the data. Usually a lot of times we base this on claims data, which is delayed by months. Um, or we look at EHR data, which is limited because it's only interaction with similar clinics that are on that EHR. Mm -hmm. So number two is explaining like where the data is limited, right? How holistic is this data? And then are there any time delays in this data? So it, the timing of it, the accuracy of it, and that it's consistent, right? So if you're going to judge me on this data, I need it to be timely and accurate and consistent. But number, the most important thing is, what do you want me to do with this data? Right. 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 Yeah, I remember the first time I saw a dashboard, um, it was actually with uh, Crimson, right? I'm not, allowed, am I allowed to say this? You know, sure. I was working at a hospital in Southern Maryland, you know, they're like, we have to review your Crimson data. And okay, right, you have to do this quarterly, it's just required of you. You're like, okay, they pull up this dashboard, there's all these lines everywhere. And it's like, these are the patients that died under your care. And you're like, whoa, okay. I wanna see, the first thing, the first reaction is, I wanna see those patients, are they truly my patients? And you know, you're like, no, I was just a consultant here. I was just, so I think had at that time, someone said, okay, let's, I'm going to show you this data, but let's frame what I want you to do with it, right? Because again, if a patient died eight months ago, what do you, what do you want to take away from that? Rather than scolding you, but it's like, how do we inform future behavior on that? And I think we don't do that investment for our providers because the first reaction when someone sees bad data is just, is this true? They question the data. And so if they understand the sources, you know, items like that, they are not so reactionary, but saying what I want you to do with this data from the get-go is very important, right? Mm -hmm. So again, I was talking about how when we initially get this data, just risk stratifying to say, these are the patients who utilize the hospital more. And let's take example, this patient, they end up going to the hospital 14 times throughout the year, right? So given that we expect them to go maybe 14 times, a gut check, 
Is this a shock to you? B, what do you think are the barriers to making, not taking it from 14 to zero, but maybe 14 to 13 or 14 to 12? Again, when people say utilization decrease, it's not elimination. It's just making a two to 5% difference is astronomical, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When it comes to that. So going from the data from nice to know to need to know, right? And taking the actions of these are the steps we want to do. Um, so again, people risk stratify the data and they risk stratify by either total medical cost, potential hospitalization, potential ED visits. But then with that, it's what's the intervention, right? Mm -hmm. And and this is where just having more frequent touches with them, whether it means making sure that they come to the office or utilizing care management, utilizing telephonic services, or them coming to the office, but not seeing the provider or the physician, but actually seeing other members of the team. And, And the one thing we find when we look at retrospective data is those high risk patients, and I'm going to define high risk as um, the patients who are the top 10% of total medical spend. Okay. For those that are considered relatively well managed, at the end, they end up being seen seven to 10 times a year. Wow. And again, that's just office visits. But in between, you have all these interactions with the patients because you're constantly keeping tabs with them, right, to get them well managed. Mm-hmm. Again, for medium risk, which is that middle 60% bucket, it ends up being three to four times a year. And for those that are relatively healthy, low risk, you know, there are 60% of the population, but they're only 10% of spend. Seeing them once or twice a year is adequate. Again, mm-hmm. we always defer to clinical judgment, but what the data shows is, hey, they say, hey, Dr. Roy, this is your panel. These are the patients that are going to the hospital a lot. What do you think would make the difference? Can we offer care management for these services? Can we, you know, bring them in for well checks where it don't involve you? Can we utilize team-based care? Then if I see a action, great, I'm more apt to look at the data, right? Mm-hmm. Understand it. And then I that's where I need it to be timely. I need to see that I'm making a difference or I'm I'm doing an intervention. I'm I'm seeing the impact of it one month right. later. Yeah. Right. Waiting for something six months later, four months later, it's going to be like, why should I continue it if I don't see if it's going to make an impact? Right. I I did want to ask you then, many of our listeners are those practice leaders who are conveying this information to the providers. So you have painted a, a very good picture of how it can be successful, but looking at it from the provider side, if they're already overwhelmed with um, pajama time and with all mm-hmm. these other uh, data points uh, and other research they're having to be involved in, uh, in addition to simply caring for the patients, what are some best practices then for those practice leaders to present this to some of those providers who may go, whoa, I'm, I'm already overwhelmed. And even if they're painting that picture where it they can see the results there. What what does that conversation look like? How do you how do you get that buy-in? Okay, so the buy-in is tricky, right? Because it again is a change management. And right now we are rewarding providers in a fee-for-service model. It's throughput. Like you should see as many patients as you can 
Oh, and, and that reminds me of the third point, but we'll, let's just skip it for now, right? Not every patient's exactly the same, right? The patients that need more help, you give them more time. Anyway, so going back to this is, number one, we need to change the motivation of the provider. What we've seen is that until about 40% of their panel is in value-based care, they're just not going to care. Not because, sorry, I take that back. It's not that they don't care. But if they're being paid one way and you're telling to do something another way, but they're not yeah. going to see any reward of that, they're going to be like, that's nice, but you're not changing. I'm not getting any benefit from keeping these patients out. You're only benefiting me if I see more patients per period of time. Mm-hmm. Going to that conversation of aligning incentives where you're actually taking them away from an RVU, like 90% or like a 10% bonus, 9% RVU to long-term, 50% base pay, 50% value-based care payment, that's a journey. And that's not a journey you do over one or two years. That's a journey over like five plus years. But you need to start having that conversation now. So number one, it's the providers that have the 40% change so that they do have skin in the game. Mm -hmm. Two is, again, making sure you have the timely, accurate, you show the data. They're able to access it themselves. They don't have to ask permission. It's readily available. And that as they improve, they see that in the data. And there's, there's, there's reward tied to it. What we see as a deficit, oh, let me take that back. What we see is that there's three types of clinics we deal with, right? You have your mom and pop one to two providers where the spouse is working the front desk. You have your medium size, right? The medium mm-hmm. bear, let's just say. Yeah. Um, five to 30 providers, right? These, these private practices lean, you know, where they do a lot of joint sharing of information. And then you have your large academic centers that have like 80% employed doctors. It's funny, when you go to the academic centers or the large centers, like, oh, we got this. We'll just tell our doctors to do this and they'll do it, right? Because they're employed by us. And what happens is, A, that's where they feel that burden of like, you're asking me to do more stuff. My pay is not changing. And at the end of the year, I get this giant bonus. And when you ask like, what am I going this bonus for? They're like, well, it's these 17 initiatives. So I'm not gonna change any behavior when I can't discern that this, the value-based payment came out of this, your mom and pop, they have the motivation. They totally want to do it. They just don't have the resources. They're like, you need to help me out and I will make the change. And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, if we have time, we can go in the technology part. Is that medium group where they're able to discuss like, this is the impact. This is what we're going to do to change. That It works the best, right? Because there's transparency. Of that. And so when they get the shared saving dollars, they distribute it to mm-hmm. the front staff, to the, the providers, to the clinicians. And when you do that, that motivates. I'm not saying money is the only motivator, but when your paycheck and your lifestyle is dependent on that, yeah, you do listen. On the academic centers where, again, that they tend to keep 80% of their shared savings. It's like, great, you could have the motivator, but if it's not big enough, you're not going to get the change. So you have to make sure your incentives are aligned with this. And they have to have enough of their panel where it is going to make a difference. And again, sometimes it's harder to just do as an institution 
until you get enough value-based contracts. Or for some institution I've seen where they front load the new guy with value-based contracts. And what's been very successful is once you get a provider who is passionate about it, it spreads, right? Mm -hmm. And what we do to motivate, and in my previous job, uh, we had a clinic in St. Louis that was just the gold standard, right? They had been doing value-based contracting for 20 years and they just did it well. The end game for those providers is the providers saw really sick patients. They spent more time with them. They had fewer patients in their panel. They spent less time in the office and they got paid more. And then you're like, okay, everyone wants that lifestyle, right? It's like one of those info commercials. Right. But there is a reasonable path to get to that. But it is, again, their incentives are all aligned. They align their staff incentives. Um, yeah, so going back to your questions, how do you have to start the conversation? It's Right. Yeah, you have that. But the, the client, the administration also has to make initial changes to bridge that gap, to show we're invested enough in this that we are going to change the way we do business, right? Mm-hmm. Compensate, reward, you know, track for you. I think a lot of people don't want to hear about this. And then what naturally comes up is specialists, right? Sorry, I, I didn't want to cut off. I didn't want to create a question for myself, but, you know, <laughs> maybe that's your question. Um, because oh, that's no. the question I got at MGAMA. I'm like, great, right. I run specialists. What do you want me to do? with Mm -hmm. this, right? Mm -hmm. Specialists more than primary care providers are completely driven by throughputs, right? Do more procedures, see more patients, be for service. And when they hear value-based contracts, they're like, that's fine, but I'm a rheumatologist. I take care of a subset of this patient. I cannot control, right? If they're going in for their heart failure or that, that's not my thing. So what happens naturally is, yes, your primary care doctor is your quarterback, right? The, the patient may prefer to go to you for certain episodes, but what we tell those specialists is, number one, create a dyad with your favorite primary care doctor, right? Okay. There is always a internal medicine, family practice, geriatrician that you trust, right? That you would want your family to be taken care of. So create a dyad where that individual takes care of a lot of the value-based care, quality measures, coding opportunities, and that you could still continue specialty care. Now there's certain specialists like cardiologists, some pulmonologists that are able to manage all that. So you really have to go to specialists like, do you wanna be in charge of lots of factors, the total care of this patient? What that means is when they need a mammogram, are you gonna do it? Are you gonna do a fall risk on this patient? right? Are you going to do a depression screening? Because if your answer is no, then find someone who is willing to do that. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes like, is this value-based care just a PCP issue? Right. And for right now, it's, it, it does, I'm just going to say it, it does rely on the PCP to help coordinate care. Mm-hmm. It doesn't okay. mean that this PCP is never going to refer to specialists, but it's going to be a little bit more judicious, right, on it. But the data is really going to help them make that decision. Mm-hmm. You brought up technology. So for a final question, then I did want to ask you, what is the challenge or the uphill battle? I think you were 
alluding to earlier when you did mention the technology side of it, particularly uh, in regards to some of those smaller practices where they're having to wear every hat. So is there additional training involved? How do you get the buy-in and the training up to speed there uh, on the technology side? It's funny, when people talk technology, they always think very sexy, expensive technology. <laughs> and honestly, when we think technology, it's what can I do to make me work more efficiently? Okay. And I like to bring this example of text messaging, right? So right now, when we say you should do care management on your high-risk patients, most clients say, well, I have one care manager. And we know that a care manager should manage about 75 to 100 active cases. If they're an extremely good care manager, they can manage 125. So they're like, great, I can manage 100 patients and I can't afford anyone else or I live in a rural area where I'm not going to get anyone else, but I have 700 sick patients. How do you expect me to do this? And that's where we're like, this is where you leverage technology. What I almost want you to do is how do I keep tabs on all those patients? and have them escalate to me. So one of the things we developed was just a simple text messaging program for COPD where it asks every day, how is your breathing compared to your baseline, right? You send the message to your 700 patients. And what we found on average, two to five will exacerbate for every hundred, right? Okay. So of your 700, maybe 35 will exacerbate. But guess what? They are now engaged. They're telling you, I need help. I know my 35. And so now I'm contacting 35 versus spending my time trying to contact 700 patients, mm. right? That's where technology makes you smarter, makes you more efficient without you spending more time, right? So now these people know that I'm going to contact them. I know what time I send the text message and I already know, like, I'm going to get 50% of them within the first hour, 25% the next, I could plan my day. And with that, it's you leverage your team-based care where there's an initial person screening these people to make the determination, do you need to come in for a same day visit? Do you need to go to the ED? Can it wait two days? And so when you do this proper escalation, the doctor doesn't get involved until there is a same day visit needed, right? But again, that's where the motivation is. Hey, doctor, if I had to add an extra patient to your schedule, are you willing to do it? Is it worth your motivation to do it? Mm -hmm. And that's why you do need that alignment. So the technology could help you out. You leverage the team-based care and you don't put the burden on just one or two individuals because that'll just lead to burnout. And we know how that goes during COVID. Yeah. That um, it leads to resignations and dissatisfaction and fatigue. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Roy, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us and sharing these thoughts with us today on the podcast. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of MGMA's Insights Podcast. Thanks again to Dr. Ashok Roy, Chief Medical Officer, Value-Based Care Solutions at Signify Health. And thanks to everyone for listening to the MGMA Podcast Network. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership.